Hello, my name's Helen Russell. I'm a journalist, happiness researcher and author. And How To Be Sad is the podcast exploring why we get sad, what we can do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better, inspired by the book of the same name. Each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences. Welcome to How To Be Sad. I've heard you speak about imagining almost two futures. You were constantly having to think, well, if I am here, we'll be doing this. And if I am not here, the family should should be doing this. That's a huge load as well. Did that take its toll? Yeah, the two. I just I had like a two track mind at all times. One was like, OK, my life is headed off cliff. And the other was trying to make plans like any kind of normal, like what what do you want to do next Christmas or but I've always had such tight scan intervals that it felt really hard to I mean six months I was like two or three months and um and yeah in all of that it it made uh it really it felt like the future was this language I just didn't speak anymore and yet I had to figure out how to be both people both people the kind of person who's the loving person who doesn't imagine invincibility and therefore is realistic. Then this other thing, which is, I think maybe all of us, which is we expect to live, you know, we want and hope and we want to make dreams and, you know, go see the pyramids or something. I heard they're really tall. They're super, (laughs) I heard they're very tall. Kind of big. I heard that Yeah, I heard it's a whole thing. Seven of wonders yeah. or something sandy um yeah very sad. yes that should be my yelp review my like google review at the end it's like pyramid very, very sandy <laughs> and um you uh, you've also i found it fascinating you described something about other people's almost emotional tourism that when a stranger will ask so you have colon cancer you stop being you and are almost a reminder of their mortality so that's you're having to take on other people's um, yeah, fears as well. I felt like I was wearing one of those giant sandwich boards that people wear where it says like the end of the world is near and they're like ringing a bell. But meanwhile, <laughs> I was like, just oh, trying to be, <laughs> oh, not again. <laughs> I avoid this corner for this reason. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Meanwhile, I'm just at a kid's birthday party. But I do think it's, um, I mean, part it's, I think we just do it all the time for lovely normal associational reasons like oh hey you're from this oh I like your sweater that you know we just play oh that reminds me of associational games and it builds intimacy until of course the thing that you remind people of is like oh no my aunt died of this and oh and like oh we were all devastated you're like oh no I don't have another anecdote to counter that with <laughs> hey pyramids uh, yes yes <laughs> yeah and you talked about bucket lists and the pressure this can put us under. What's your view on the bucket list now? I have this um, series of very lovely mental health professionals. I, I, it always seemed like all of them were named Caitlin. And they were all just very encouraging and really wanted me to understand what dreams I might yet have and encouraged me to make a bucket list. And um, like, do I want to, you know, uh, try hot air ballooning or read every work of great fiction or and um and so immediately my historical brain is like what is that term when was it popular <laughs> and you know just research 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 and of course the the desire to kind of be on 
you know, a hero's journey where you go out and you venture and you figure out parts of your, like you're kind of tested against the world is a, has a long history and is a big, beautiful feeling. But the kind that's taken hold and mostly honest, it turns out that the phrase bucket list has really only been popularized mostly out of after the 2007 Morgan Freeman movie called The Bucket List. Oh, my goodness. Where, yeah, people are like, oh, my gosh, that's that's a whole thing I didn't realize I was doing. And <laughs> they um, and it's, you know, it becomes this kind of set of experiences that people want to check off, like, you know, restore a vintage car or something. And the problem, of course, especially in its, its modern form, is we have this social media age in which we're already playing show and tell anyway. So everybody always seems to be take. I mean, in the, in the United States, the middle-class family has this like, and then I must take my kids to Disneyland or every anniversary, you're supposed to like clutch your partner and look soulfully into the camera and be like, you are my everything um, about your anniversary as if everybody is having these life completing experiences. But the problem of course, is that it becomes a kind of, experiential capitalism where you can sort of collect the whole dozen and you'll be the person you always thought you would be. And it's a painful thing when you start, you know, I, it took me a bit. I was like trying to write around how I was, why it felt so incomplete. And I, you know, I realized like, oh, it's, it's a lot easier to count items than to really know what counts. You've, you've written kind of really movingly after the murder of George Floyd about the requirement to perform anger and activism. And mm. when we spoke for How To Be Sad, you talked about, I guess, on the back of Slay In Your Lane, there have been lots of studies that black women are not allowed to bring their whole selves to the workplace, yeah. for example, or that uh, you are not kind of allowed to... I think you wrote Restraint Is Your Reality, mm. that you know fallibility is is a luxury in that way yeah absolutely i'm really interested how you feel about that now because i mean that just seemed profoundly sad but that's probably with the naivety of being someone who Mm. was very much educated by your book because it's not an experience i've lived through it just seems so sad how how do you feel about that now oh gosh it's just it's so there's just so many layers and levels to it i think so like when it comes to the idea of like performing anger and grief and activism it's something that just really does not sit well with me at all because I feel like at this point I mean I don't even know if it's at this point but like I should not have to sit here and tweet about the fact that like I am traumatized and pained by yet another mindless senseless murder at the hands of police in the states I don't know why it would be assumed I wasn't as a black person that also on top of that what really frustrates me is like the internet is so arbitrary because Betty Majinga, a you know TFL worker, died because somebody spat at her. At you know, I think she was working at Victoria Station. Someone spat at her, and you know she caught coronavirus and she died. Same thing happened to a taxi driver called Stephen Bell, and you know he someone got in his car, spat at him, and he died. A black man, and these were all tra- like this is the thing. All of these travesties, travesties that are race based or more likely to happen to black people because that's the thing. Like when we look at black people more likely to die of coronavirus again class issue like it's not primarily just going to be black people that are like working remotely it's black people that are working on the front lines it's key workers it's black people that are working in the nhs it's black people that are working um, for transport for london and to me it's like the idea that because lots of white people had finally sort of got the message around george floyd that then everybody in unison black people that have been speaking about this for years forever for their entire lives are then supposed to also 
come along on that journey, inverted commas, and also start performing grief was just bizarre to me. I think the internet in terms of the way it, I mean, I wrote a similar piece actually years ago about the very tragic death of Mike from Love Island. He committed suicide. It was horrible. I'm a big Love Island fan. I really liked him. It was really just sad to see. But what was sadder was the fact that Megan McKenna, his ex-girlfriend, who I think, you know, she's a reality TV star as well, was being hounded to show, like, to, to release a statement, to, to explain the fact yeah. that she was sad. I think something similar might have happened to, like, I mean, I don't know if it happened or maybe she was preempting it, but when Kobe Bryant tragically passed his wife released a statement like within days and I just sat there thinking Jesus Christ I'll never forget like so I had a really severe like you know traumatic experience happen in 2014 and I just went offline for like a year and sometimes people bring it up to me like god do you remember that year you just disappeared offline I'm like yeah yeah I remember I know exactly what I did and I would never explain it I never will unless I feel moved to and it scares me that people felt that that grief was owed and I think even external to a race I it's complicated because I understand it when people want white people or non-black people to show that they care because they feel that if they can't see it, it's not happening. But what's dangerous about that is then I am much more comforted by by knowing that there are people that are doing things and the idea that like a white person tweeting like, God, this is awful, here's a screenshot of my donation is allyship or solidarity worries me. Not even just because the the core of what's being done, the, the incentive is performative and, and to sate people from basically calling them racist. Because at the end of the day, if that still results in donations, you know, maybe it's a, it's a net good. But it's the fact that like, in terms of long-term change, I don't want, I don't know. I, something just doesn't sit right with me with that. And if your sister represented home, I wonder what role you had in that family. Well, that's really interesting. I think my sister in our sort of family script because I'm of the belief and I don't know about you Helen but I've started reading your wonderful book which I had a copy of which is absolutely brilliant how to be sad it's called isn't it and I saw a lot of similarities in some ways in our in our lives and our family structures and I feel that most families do operate without realizing it on a script essentially and everyone plays their part and you don't realise it. And before long, you're like an old actor who's been in the mousetrap for 30 years, just saying the same lines. And it's only when something happens like tragedy, like grief or someone gets therapy, <laughs> that that suddenly that changes and you're not just spouting lines. And I suppose in my family, if we go back to the original draft, the screenwriter's draft, <laughs> the characters were set up so that I was sort of the slightly high maintenance diva trying to pull focus, I think. I was naughty, I was difficult, I was loud. And my dad was sort of quite absent in some ways, but like most family structures in those time at the in that time, sort of revered and all knowing and all seeing and and my mother was um sort of like a stage manager trying to control us all we were I always said we were like a fam. we were like a sort of cast of touring players we'd turn up to people's houses do our bit perform my sister and I performed from a very young age you know I knew in dinner parties that instinctively I was never quite myself Helen because I'd know right we're going to the bank managers or the accountants or those posh people who we owe money to so I have to be posh and polite and then we're going to those 
slightly eccentric actors, so I'll tell funny stories. So I, I was very chameleon-like. That was child of performers, I guess. And my sister was very much the sort of... She was kind and she was gentle and she was sort of held on a pedestal, really. And she deserved to be on that pedestal. But I only realised later in life we would speak about this. And I think she had the sense, you realise that sometimes being the golden child, it comes with its own pressures. Not too many people know this story, but I'll, I'll share it with you. Before Maury died, I wanted the publishers to hear his voice because it was obvious they were never going to meet him. You know, he was in Boston, they were in New York. He was too sick at that stage to entertain anybody. So literally they were gonna be publishing this book and the wisdom of this guy who they'd never met. And I thought it was important for them to hear his voice. And these, this was before the days of iPhones where you could have filmed something. So I brought a little cassette recorder and I said, I want you to record a message for the publishers. And he said, okay, turn it on. I said, well, do you wanna practice? And he said, Mitch, at this age, I don't practice. <laughs> I said, okay. So I pressed play and record. And he said, hello, good people of Doubleday. This is Maury Schwartz. Thank you for agreeing to publish our book. Mitch is going to provide the music and I'm going to provide the words and we'll make a beautiful symphony together. And I know I won't be there when it's published. I won't be around when the book comes out, but I want you to know wherever I am, I'll be watching. And I said, perfect, <laughs> you know, because I wanted to make sure that they took it seriously and they felt a little guilty if they didn't. So they have that tape still, the, you know, the editors uh, who were there and we always joke about it, you know, Maury's voice is haunting them and he was watching <laughs> over the publication, so. I guess they did okay. We are here to talk about sadness and you've spoken about how so many of us push it away and how we often keep smiling or pretending it's not there or eat or drink alcohol or take drugs or spend hours watching TV or gaming. And can you talk about what happens when we do push our emotions away? Well, I think when those emotions are maybe small and the event is not highly significant, then sometimes they, they do disappear and they don't come back and then and when you then use that as a sort of go-to strategy but when it comes to bigger things or more significant things then those feelings often need to be processed in a more complex way and if we don't do that they don't necessarily disappear or go anywhere and they sort of almost lay dormant waiting for their chance to be thought about and processed and understood and so what happens is if you start pushing things away you know if you have a really difficult time and you push it away with, I don't know, let's say alcohol or food, then you have to keep pushing it away because the minute you stop, it all comes flooding back and it takes its chance to sort of be in your conscious. So I, I don't know if you sort of, lots, lots of people try to block out emotion by staying busy uh, and they just fill their time with, you know, do, do, do. And so then those people often become afraid of rest and taking time out. They don't want to sit still because... You don't know what's going to come up if you if you allow yourself to sort of quiet your mind. So you, you end up in this sort of trap of either busyness or drinking or eating or whatever it is. And so it's really important, I think, to when you experience something difficult, to take time to feel what emotion, whatever emotion comes up, 
to process it and look after yourself throughout that. So it's not just, you know, expose yourself to the pain and be overwhelmed. It's also find ways to self-soothe through that and look after yourself in the way that you would with somebody else. So if a child was in, you know, really heightened distress, you wouldn't just sit and watch them through that. You might, you know, look after them, you might soothe them, you might cuddle them, you might get them a warm drink, you might allow them a chance to talk about it. Then you might, you know, allow them a rest by distracting them for a little while. And then you might talk about it a bit more later. And it's thinking about those things that you do for other people out of compassion, but doing it for yourself. You can throw everything at this and still not have a baby. And the idea that there are things in life like infertility, childlessness, old age and death that do not respond to human agency and will is terrifying. You know, we live in an age where we like to think we can solve everything, but actually we are still these fragile, fleshy envelopes of water walking around in a sharp, pointy world with finite lives. You know, it's like we are so fragile and powerless over over the really big things and many of the small things too. But that is a massive inconvenient truth. It certainly is. So Jodie, I would love for you to tell us about what we do with that grief. I spoke to the psychotherapist Julia Samuel about, again, living losses and the idea of, of how we handle this. But you had some really great suggestions in in your book. And I loved the research from, from Sue Ryder charity about I really like the finiteness that we grieve on average about two years, one month and four days after losing a loved one. And that you are very, you give a lot of hope in your work and in your writing about this will hurt and it will hurt a lot and it will never go away. But if you do some work, you will feel better, a bit better in about a year. So can you tell me about what we should be doing to grieve these living losses? I think the most important thing that grief needs is it needs company. It needs empathic company. It is very helpful in all forms of grief, especially in the early stages, to be around people who've experienced a very, very similar form of grief. So, for example, you know, for bereaved parents of young children, it is incredibly helpful to be with other bereaved parents or children around that age. And for women who are grieving their childlessness, it is incredibly important, particularly as our grief is disenfranchised, that we have other childless women who are prepared to look at their grief to discuss it with, because there will be many childless women perhaps in your life who are not willing to discuss it, who are not willing to go there. Um, You need to find what I call the conscious childless women, the ones who are consciously, they know that they're grieving and they they need support. Grief is a social emotion, it is a form of love. It needs an other, it needs relationship. That is how it heals. If it was possible to grieve on our own, in our heads, in our rooms, We would do it and we'd all be fine, but it doesn't work like that. And until grief has that other to be connected to, until you can look into the eyes or you can read the words of someone online and you can have that sense that they 100% understand what you're talking about, there is some kind of magic alchemy of healing in that moment. I've had friends who've been bereaved and people who've gone through tough times. You don't want to intrude. You don't want to, I've had a a friend who went through a difficult experience recently and I had that struggle and I found myself going back into me pre-grief, which was, or pre-experience of of multiple losses, of thinking, well, I won't disturb them. And then I thought, 
Well, no, it's not disturbing someone to just quietly say, I'm thinking of you. I, that th little gestures like that made such a difference. You know, a friend of mine, James, who was living in America and just this massive, vast tray of cupcakes turned up from, you know, Hummingbird or something. And it sounds so trivial, but actually it's not the cupcakes, is it? It's not, it's, it's basically saying you're loved. People are thinking of you. And that's what the people offering to cook meals, it's acts of service. That's how you show love, isn't it? And acts of service at a time like that are incredibly important. And I think the other thing that's been really important is having people who will still understand that even now, 10 years later, it still gets me on a, on a very regular basis that it's not over for me. It's over for them, I understand that, because it was a terrible thing that happened to me. But it's not something that happened to me. It's sort of part of me. And it doesn't take much to trigger it, to be honest. I wondered that. I wondered how, and having spoken to people who have lost someone incredibly important to them, how you feel about other people even saying her name. Does that feel an imposition? Or is that sort of keeping her memory alive for you? Well, I feel... Because you lost, you lost a sibling, didn't you, when she was very yes. young? Yeah, but she was tiny, yeah. Yeah, but it's a loss, isn't it? And yeah. I think it's similar in some ways because it's a, a life not fully lived. And that's a different kind of grief, isn't it, I think? to it, There is a difference. I was very much aware of it because they all died, my sister and my parents, so close to each other. Just And I wasn't comparing them, like, giving one five stars, one three. That funeral wasn't as good. That trip advice. No, exactly. The trip. But I was thinking how different that sense of mourning was, that at my sister's funeral, the sadness was just so overwhelming. There was a kind of a horror to it because at my parents, both of my parents' funerals, people can not only, you know, become, can console you and you sort of want to hear those things. It's nice. They lived a good life. It's better they didn't suffer. They got to see their grandchildren. They got to see you do this. There's all that stuff. Whereas with a, a mother who's just had a, whose baby is one, there's nothing. There is nothing good to be taken from that. And And similarly with your sister, that's a life unlived. It's cruel and it's awful. So that stuff's tough. And I, I feel with my sister now, it's interesting. It's helped me a lot accept sadness, actually, because I've realised that I think previously I possibly was someone who would sometimes, you know, we all know those people who run away from feelings of sadness, don't they? And they, I understand why they do it, because I think I used to do it. It feels uncomfortable. It feels sort of intrusive. And they don't want to watch sad films. They don't want to listen to sad music. They don't want to hear anything sad. They don't cry. I think what I realised having lost my sister is that I couldn't do that anymore because by running away from sadness, I was running away from her and that felt insulting to her memory that my temporary discomfort was more important than the memory of her life. You know, that actually I wanted to honour those moments. It's absolutely in every possible way life is a video game. Life is supposed to be hard like a video game is supposed to be hard. Okay, Life has no end to it like a video game has no end to it. Okay, Life is all about this moment. Because by the way, when I used to play with Ali, I would go to the, run to the end of the game and Ali would put his controller down and go like, Papa, why, why are you running there? 
And I'm like, Ali, the end of the game is there. And he would go like, no, Papa, that's stupid. We're playing. We're playing. Why do you want to end the game? We're playing. We go to the places where there is explosion and smoke, where we can develop and learn and become better gamers, where we can have fun. Life, interestingly, has no purpose. Again, a Western concept that we think that there is a point in the future, a target, that we will strive to for the rest of our life and we'll feel upset until we get to it. And then when we get to it, we'll hold it and then feel upset again because we have no target anymore. And, and the truth is the purpose of life is this moment. That's the entire purpose. The entire purpose is you and I are here. I can put my whole self into this, enjoy it fully, do the best out of it. They're not you know, a, a contradictory. I can enjoy something fully and make it amazing at the same time. And that's a game. That's a game. Life is to be played. I know that it's true that when you lose a child, many, many couples break up. And I can see why, because it's murder. It's the worst thing that we have ever gone through. And we watched our little girl. We were in bed with her when she took her last breath, which is both beautiful and haunting at the same time. Leaned on each other, you know. Uh, we couldn't imagine getting through it without the other one. And so we didn't go that route of blaming, you know, why didn't you do more for this? Or you should have called the doctor for this, but people do. And they often break up. For us, it kind of brought us closer together. It's just hard to imagine not being with someone whom you went through that with, you know, because how could you ever share that with anyone else? How could some other woman or some other guy come along and you say, well, let me tell you, about how I felt when I lost my child. That's just too alien to try to introduce to a relationship. When you went through that and when you go through tough times now, how, how do you cope? What helps you? Your wife, obviously, you help, you help each other. I wonder if there are any other things that you could share. One of the reasons I agreed to do your podcast is because there's the name of your podcast. I, I've never seen a, one quite like it. And I think it's really a really good premise and a good question. How are you sad? How do you be sad? Because sadness is a fact of life and sadness is an emotion that, you know, many, many people think that the answer to how to be sad is to run from it, you know, uh, run as far away from sadness as you can. So you never have to be sad, but you're going to be. A better thing would be to figure out how to best be sad and how to understand sadness in the first place. And the way that I have come to understand sadness is to first come to understand happiness. If you believe that the happiness that you have on your good days is an incredible gift and not some kind of guarantee, but a gift, something that you have found your way to and you should celebrate and remind yourself of how many good days you have, then when you have bad days, when you get sad, you can see them as the counter to all the great days that you had. And as that God character says in the book, your great memories, your happiness, when you don't have that on a given day, the absence, the absence of that isn't punishment. You can still appreciate that. So when I have a bad day, but I can say, yeah, but look at all the amazing days I've already had. Look at all the great days I've had before this. I am way, 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 way in the black, as we say in the States. I can endure this. I can endure this patch because there'll be, I'll find my way back to those days again. But you really can't get a grip on sadness 
until you get a grip on happiness and realize how precious it is and embrace it when it happens. That to me becomes your best armor for sadness when sadness comes along. 